Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to talk about ways to improve your immunity. We're going to do that with not one, but two authors uh, who have uh, written books in the past about this. And their new book is The Immunity Fix. And we have uh, Dr. James D. Nicolatonio, who I wrote a previous book with called Superfuel. And Seem Lond, who's a uh, esteemed biohacker who has written uh, one of the best books out there, I think, on uh, helping you understand how to implement many of these strategies. It's called Metabolic Autophagy. And if you haven't gotten that book, I would strongly recommend you pick it up because it is it is the book I wish I would have had before I started my journey. So. Uh, it really puts it all together in a real goes deep, but it explains it at a real simple level. So we're going to, they've collaborated and written this other book, which is the immunity fix. So, uh, welcome guys. And thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I'm glad to be here again. Okay. So let's get the backstory. I, I, I think I've got the primary component is because COVID-19, hence the, the <laughs> reason for, uh, some real powerful strategies to upregulate your immune system. So, but I'm curious as to what catalyzed the collaboration and the desire to write this book together. It's a good question. So, it stemmed sort of from me when I was publishing uh, several academic papers on what seems to be going wrong with people who are suffering from worse COVID 19 outcomes. So, we had published several nutraceutical strategies. And what seems to be happening is um, essentially people aren't producing as much type one interferons, and there's also a reduction in their adaptive immune system. So essentially you don't clear the virus quickly, and then you end up having to rely on a more pro-inflammatory killing of the virus in your own cells. Well, let, so let me just stop you there because I, I, uh, not everyone is adept as you uh, and others are with the immune system. So can you describe in more detail what, detail what the adaptive immune system is? Sure. So essentially you have, we, we have broken it down, right. As in, you know, in the medical community, our immune system, it's much more complex than this, but there's the innate immune system, um, which is like your first line defense. And that's made up of natural killer cells and macrophages and white blood cells like neutrophils. And then you have something called the adaptive immune system, which is essentially your, your B cells, which produce antibodies and your T cells. And we, we used to think that the adaptive immune system is sort of like this, this system that takes a while to kick in, right? And once you have immunity from your adaptive immune system, um, then you sort of have a longer term protection, which is true. However, the adaptive immune system also seems to have cross sensitivity and meaning if you've been exposed to previous coronaviruses, your T cells seem to have some cross sensitivity to SARS-CoV-2. So essentially what we see is you have, you have these people with a reduction in their T cells 
in their, their cytotoxicity of these CD8T killer cells, which kill in a nice apoptotic uh, controlled way. Now, when you have a reduction in those type of immune cells, now you have to have your pro-inflammatory innate immune system kick in. Um, things like neutrophils, white blood cells, macrophages, they kill in a much more pro-inflammatory, um, non-specific way, and they end up killing healthy bystander cells. So what we think is going on, Joe, is essentially you have this reduction in type 1 interferons, which, again, our immune system produces these interferons, which help us interfere with the virus. And at the same token, you have a reduction in B cells and T cells. And so what ends up happening, again, is you don't clear the virus and you end up having this pro-inflammatory killing. And to, to, to your point, Sim and I collaborated because these things are complex. We need to get this in layman's terms. And essentially what, it, what our book boils down to is your diet and your lifestyle control those, those types of things. And there's things that you can do to boost your own immune system. Hmm. All right. Do you have any follow-up comments, Sim? Yeah, like uh, I, I do. I want to add maybe like that the... Let's say, for example, the T cell function also declines with uh, age and uh, chronic diseases. So you see a lot of these commonalities that uh, the people who are experiencing the worst outcomes from COVID-19 are the elderly or someone who has these uh, comorbidities like diabetes, uh, hypertension, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, and all those things. Um, they, can, they, act, they definitely worsen, let's say, the pro-inflammatory response that you get from the virus but uh, it also just weakens the immunity in general. So yeah, the book is going to talk about uh, how can you maybe you know sidestep uh, that process or uh, prevent against that. And uh, yeah, we uh, draw not only on like uh, dietary strategies, uh, but uh, everything starting with uh, saunas, uh, intermittent fasting, exercise, sleep, and yeah, it's a it's a very uh, holistic uh, approach uh, to looking at the immune system. And yeah, you know, just to say one thing, Joe, on this topic of uh, re reduced T cell killing which we, we believe to be a primary cause of, you know, severe COVID-19. If you look at people with genetically low magnesium levels in their cell, the ionic three magnesium, which is actually the magnesium that's active in the body. So you can have normal total serum magnesium, but if your ionic free magnesium is low, you actually have magnesium deficiency. Well, what we see is occurring potentially is a deficiency in this free ionic magnesium in our immune cells. So people who have genetically low magnesium in their natural killer cells and their CD8T killer cells, their cytotoxicity of their immune system is down. They have chronic activation of Epstein-Barr, which 95% of us are infected with, and they're at a much higher risk of lymphoma. And that's just one nutrient being deficient in one nutrient can cause this immunodeficiency essentially. So we go through the book on how nutrients in your immune system interact and why nutrient deficiencies are probably leading a lot of these poor COVID-19 outcomes. Great. So, um, yeah, it was, it's a really interesting book with respect to a compilation of incredible resources. Um, I'm, I'm thinking though, it seems to be my superficial impression that, uh, obviously there was a, uh, desire to put this information out there quickly because of the urgency of the scenario and providing this information to the public. Uh, and as a result, as you know, I mean, it seems a, a big portion of the book is more like an encyclopedia where it has incredible knowledge and information, but it really isn't, uh, I guess, structured in a way to, or in a format that's easy to, uh, to not necessarily comprehend, but to 
put it in a proper perspective in a framework. Um, I mean, so, some parts of the book, not all of them, but some of them seem to be that way. So, well, there's really, it's, it seems like it's like bullet points from a lot of different good studies and, and information that you wouldn't necessarily be aware of intuitively of some of it, but most of it is just like little bits and pieces. So I think that's one of the challenges I had with it. It was, it was a sort of piecemeal in some respects. So I'm wondering if you could help consolidate that now and, and I guess uh, put it, give your, both of you give your top recommendations with respect to the, the most uh, effective uh, and efficient strategies to up, improve your immune system. Because there's so many bits and pieces all over the place. And if there's any criticism in the book, that would be the big one is that it just it doesn't seem to tie it all together really well. So like you do this step, this step and put it, put it sequentially. I mean, lots of great bits of information, but not really put together in a, in a, in a co cohesive way. Yeah. I think, and you make a good point, right? It's uh, because it's so complex. Yeah. And yeah. And it's hard to do. I mean, to do it the right way would take years. I would think it's just, well, it's just so there's, there's so many different contributors. Right. And so from, and I guess, let's go, let's go from the highest to the lowest, in my opinion. Number one would be okay. vitamin D deficiency because, Oh, come on. How, how can you, how can you possibly believe that? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, of course, from a mechanistic knows he's interviewed me on a whole podcast for that. So, <laughs> well, I mean, from a, from a, let's talk about how it works in the body. It activates over 2000 genes, right. Including, you know, vitamin K dependent proteins and and repair genes so it's extremely yeah, that, important. that so was i was being sarcastic you knew that oh i know joe i know <laughs> um, all right so i guess from a from a risk perspective right age being over 60 okay might increase your risk of dying by ninefold being profoundly vitamin d deficient increases your risk of dying from covid-19 by up to 15 fold so you can't change your age but you can certainly change your vitamin D status. So mm -hmm. in, in my opinion, that's number one. Number yeah, two, see, happens see, that's a, that's a beautiful pearl. And you don't, and if you read your book, it doesn't really, you don't get that message that I, I at least I didn't get it from reading it. So well, I mean, well, it's in perspective is just like so useful because that's what people need. They need to understand, you know, how to focus their limited time, effort, energy, and resources. So the book came out almost a month ago, and unfortunately, most of these studies have just come out on vitamin D. Um, so, no, so come on. I was, I, I actually had a paper published. I mean, I know you published all the time, but uh, I, well, the really, I the really good years. ones, not, not the preprints, Joe. I'm talking about the actual peer reviewed academic BMJ and, and these, these gold standard ones have just recently come out. And, I'll, and I can cover some of those, which are pretty intriguing, and I haven't seen you covered, the, covered these studies yet. Um, but however, so vitamin D, right, helps us produce um, these antibacterial antiviral cathelicidins, which is extremely important how we fight naturally fight infections. AM, AMP, and beta defense, microbial peptides, alpha yeah. and, and beta defensins too, yeah. um, and nucleocapsids and all these other types of things. Um, and essentially, though, it's calcitriol that's doing all the work. It's the active of vitamin mm -hmm. D. 
And in order to activate it, you need magnesium uh, for the enzymes to convert it. So in my opinion, magnesium would be number two, not only from the fact that you can't activate vitamin D without magnesium, but also from the fact that if you have low magnesium in the cell of your immune cells, that makes them immunodeficient essentially. You know what I found really interesting when I was writing my papers, I'm sorry for the interruption, but it was, it's such an important point. Because when I was first became aware of vitamin D and was taught about it in medical school, this activation where you're putting two hydroxyl groups on the vitamin D molecule to make it to calcitriol uh, is uh, we thought only occurred in the liver and the kidney. And it turns out nothing could be further from the truth, but the immune cells, specifically in the lung, they make that conversion right in the cells in the lung. It still requires magnesium, those enzymes. No, of course. But but we didn't even know that that activation, we thought we had to go, you know, go to liver first and then the kidney and then right. go to the cells. But the cells themselves actually make the conversion. Correct. Yeah, you're right. I mean, even prostate cells um, yeah, yeah. synthesize their own um, active vitamin D. So essentially, again, it's, it's one of the largest risk factors, uh, poor vitamin D status with worse outcomes. Um, and, you know, increase in mortality as well. And then obviously magnesium going down from there, zinc, zinc is uh, just from the clinical studies on common cold, right? We know that if you get the dose, right, you take it within 24 hours, zinc has been shown to cut the duration of the common cold by six to seven days. If you get, and th there's some complex things with zinc, you got to get the form correct. If you're using lozenges, you have to take it every two hours. You got to take it within 24 hours of symptom onset. You have to take about 18 milligrams per dose and you have to get the total dose over 75 milligrams so that some of these things are complex but when you do it correctly you can see basically you know complete elimination in the duration of the common cold so that'd be probably my third fourth would be selenium simply because uh not only is selenium deficiency associated with a five-fold higher risk of dying from covid and a three-fold higher risk of having a poor covid outcome um, but the fact that if you look at other RNA viruses that are non-virulent, like Coxsackie virus, which can cause hand, foot, and mouth, if you're deficient in selenium, that leads to Kishan disease, which is cardiomyopathy. So if you're deficient in selenium, that can take a non-virulent RNA virus and make it virulent and cause induced cardiomyopathy. And you treat these patients by simply giving them selenium. So I think selenium is a huge player, not only from that perspective, but a lot of these studies have shown that most COVID patients are D deficient, selenium deficient, zinc deficient, vitamin C deficient. And then of course- Selenium, uh, but also important for the glutathione, which probably has a massive impact. In, in my opinion, the, the, the primary benefit from selenium uh, would be thioredoxin reductase and methionine sulfoxide reductase, which is required to essentially uh, reduce oxidized methionine residues on oxidized proteins. So if you want to heal an oxidized protein, you need thioredoxin reductase, which requires selenium. Then of course, glutathione peroxidase also requires selenium. Um, and you're correct that if you want to boost glutathione levels, selenium needs to be uh, sort of improved. And then from a thyroid perspective, right, in order to activate thyroid hormones, you need selenium. And the thing is, is, is our foods are becoming more deficient in selenium as well. Uh, there's, there's been a depletion of selenium in our foods, and that may be contributing as well to why so many COVID patients may be deficient in selenium. And then from, from, uh, from a personal theoretical perspective, in my opinion, things that would really move the needle in severe COVID patients would be um, inhaled nitric oxide, inhaled molecular hydrogen, melatonin, 
No, wait, wait, wait. Are you sure it's inhaled molecular hydrogen or inhaled uh, hydrogen peroxide? No, no, no. Well, inhaled hydrogen peroxide potentially, but I'm talking about inhaled uh, hydrogen at two to three percent. Molecular, molecular hydrogen. Correct, at two to three percent, because all the animal models show that in hypoxic or hyperoxemia, when you throw a patient on a ventilator and just give them oxygen, that is a super oxidative stress state. And melatonin is interesting because I kind of view it like molecular hydrogen, but actually with some additional advantages. So like molecular hydrogen, melatonin can freely pass into any cell membrane. So that's very key. If you want to get to the oxidative stress, you have to be able to access it and get into the mitochondria. Melatonin and molecular hydrogen are, are your two molecules that can really do that and really do that well. Inhaled molecular hydrogen seems to activate NRF2, whereas oral uh, seems to primarily work through ghrelin and, and activating ghrelin receptors. Um, but melatonin is not just this hormone we secrete in the brain. We, we synthesize it, like which we synthesize it from serotonin and it can be produced in many cells. And so it's active throughout the entire day. Um, but what's interesting is that it's one of the only molecules that seems to increase the transcription of NRF2. So most plant polyphenols and all these other NRF2 boosters, they only inhibit the inhibitor of NRF2, which is KEEP1. Um, and essentially they're making the current NRF2 levels more active. Well, when you add melatonin, that increases the transcription of NRF2. Very few molecules can actually do that. And NRF2 is how we uh, boost our endogenous antioxidant enzymes. Really, that's the key. If you have acute respiratory distress, you want to boost your overall endogenous antioxidant systems. And the best way to do that probably is through uh, NR, uh, NRF2 activators, particularly melatonin. But we had a, we had a whole slew of other molecules. Which, that can... What type of doses are you advocating? Well, I, well, I can't recommend anything, but if we look at the most recent uh, case series published on 10, uh, 10 patients uh, who had COVID pneumonia, um, uh, they were given 36 to 72 milligrams of melatonin total per day in four divided doses. And this, the, the study actually said it was given by mouth. It said PO. And um, in those studies, so essentially you're looking at 10 to 20 milligrams of melatonin four times per day. And typically much higher than typically recommended. It is, but what's the back to the molecular hydrogen point is it's so safe. I mean, doses of melatonin up to a thousand milligrams per day in humans have shown virtually no side effects besides grogginess and sleepiness. Um, and what the studies, the observational, I want to be clear on this. These are observational studies, so can't prove causation. However, um, melatonin use is associated with an 83% reduction in mortality from COVID a 30 to 50% reduction in testing positive for SARS-CoV-2. And in a case series of 10 COVID pneumonia patients, uh, it cut the duration of hospital stay by five days. And none of those patients who got melatonin ended up on a mechanical ventilator or died. Whereas similar severe COVID cases during that were hospitalized at the same time, 25 to 40% of those individuals ended up on mechanical ventilators or died. So there's really good observational and me mechanistic information that this very, very safe compound at an appropriate dose uh, may have some significant utility. Yeah, we are uh, recording this on November 23rd, the Monday barrier to Thanksgiving. 
And uh, interestingly, the reason I mentioned that is our lead article for today is on melatonin for the use of COVID-19. And uh, we go over a lot of the information that you're presenting. So thank you for reinforcing that. Well, what's really cool about melatonin, we didn't, we didn't really realize this until maybe 10 years ago. Not only that is it actively produced throughout the day and that it's this master antioxidant, um, it, it, so it, meaning it can actually scavenge free radicals. It, can, it binds to melatonin receptors, which also upregulate antioxidant defense systems. And melatonin actually seems to concentrate in the bone marrow. And that's important because your immune system comes from your bone marrow, comes from stem cells produced from your bone marrow. And then um, your, from those stem cells, you get right, your immune cells. Now, your immune cells can even produce melatonin. Uh, some of your immune cells. And we think that it's being concentrated in the bone marrow to protect immature stem cells and immune cells from damage, which actually makes a lot of sense. Okay. So I just want to, again, place the emphasis on being pragmatic, practical, and giving people usable pieces of information. So I would like to respectfully disagree with your assessment of the molecular, inhale molecular hydrogen gas, which is, you know, I've, I'm a huge fan of molecular hydrogen. It is absolutely my favorite single supplement, but it is really difficult to get it as the hydrogen gas. And it's not something the average person is going to do. Uh, there are expensive devices, usually in the order of five, $10,000 that you can inhale it, but that, uh, and, and if you have that, it's great. And it works. Well, we're talking about in the hospital, right? I'm talking about, if yeah, well, I'm talking about the people no. watching this that are not in the hospital are going to use something. So let oh, me, yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Let me finish. So the other option is the, and I'm not sure if you have any clinical experience in this. I, I, I have a considerable amount and have seen nothing less than miraculous results or result as a as a uh, consequence of using the molecular, not molecular, inhaled nebulized uh, hydrogen peroxide. I think it is orders of magnitude, and I literally mean orders of magnitude, exponentially better. Now, does that mean I wouldn't use molecular hydrogen? Absolutely not. Would I not use ketone esters that you talk about in there? Absolutely, I would use them. But if you were talking about quick, incredibly, almost universally effective interventions for literally pennies, if you've already got the investment of a nebulizer, have one laying around the house, it's basically free. And the side effects are just non-existent. Not that there's side effects with almost everything else you mentioned, that the melatonin or the molecular hydrogen, there are no side effects. But when you compare them to conventional interventions, there certainly are. So I would recommend that as my primary, number one, absolute go-to strategy, because I I've, can't tell you how many people I've seen who felt like they were dying. They were had a fever. They were sick, so sick that they couldn't even get up and go to the hospital. And and they uh, no energy, of course, and and just responded incredibly well within literally a few a few a few inhalations of that. So I would have to put that as number one. And then all the other things too that you've mentioned, because I mean you put. If, if, you, if you had an individual that was going to integrate and apply all those recommendations you just reviewed and the molecular, uh, the inhaled nebulized peroxide, I think the effectiveness rate would be over 95%. I just think, don't think it, virtually anyone would pass away if they use these interventions. And it's, 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 a, it's a beyond tragic that, that this information is not known and widely implemented. Yeah. So I'll let you respond to that. <laughs> 
Well, I, I think um, you make a good you make a good point that I mean while while it might be somewhat difficult, right, to make an <laughs> hydrogen peroxide at home, right? No, no, it's not, it's not. It's actually pretty simple. The most challenging issue is to get the nebulizer, uh, and you know, so you have to have it lined up. You don't want to because most people need it. They need it like that. And if they have to order it and wait a day or two or a week, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy. But uh, we're the thing and I are a little stubborn. We're, we, <laughs> no, no. What you do is you, you, have, you dilute the peroxide. You could even use a 3% one you buy at the drugstore by 30 fold. So it's not 3%, it's 0.1%. So which, you know, dilutes the, the, the stabilizers that are in there and decreases the toxicity of that. But it's a really tiny amount. I think it works like a signaling molecule and it may actually have some direct virucidal effect impact on the cells within the lining of the lungs and the sinuses where the virus takes hold initially. So you're killing it directly, plus activating the immune responses with the hydrogen peroxide. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense to do an actual clinical study and test these things because if oh, yeah. it has, well, it has been done. Brownstein's done it. He's did it with over 107 people. Now he got a lot of flack because it wasn't uh, randomized and placebo controlled. You know? So, uh, but he, he did there was like, he got virtually a hundred percent of people better with it. So. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, this ultimately it comes down to for the easiest things for people to do. Of right. It's, yeah, I agree. The optimal right health uh, diet, get you, make sure your nutrient status is optimal exercise. And then we go through some other strategies too, sunlight and things, you know, yeah, well, let, let's, let's hand it over to our, our other guest, seam <laughs> who can compliment what you just shared because, uh, he is the really widely viewed as having enormous wisdom at his young age of mid twenties of what bio, physical biological strategies you can employ to, that are historically effective that can be so powerful in optimizing the immune response. So, so Seem, why don't you give us your perspective? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I do agree a lot with the uh, with, with uh, Dr. James that uh, you know optimizing your nutrient status is one of the kind of uh, key things uh, that we should all focus on, at least preventing these deficiencies. And it is very easy to do as well. But uh, you know, as we are talking about nutrition, I would maybe want to also add that one of the best preventative, uh, let's say, toolkits for uh, preventing the severity of any infections and strengthening your immune system is to just uh, take care of your metabolic health. And uh, yeah, like, you know, research does find that uh, metabolic syndrome and uh, obesity and diabetes, all those things, they worsen the outcomes of, uh, you know, COVID-19 as well as other infections like um, influenza and uh, yeah, other, other, other diseases. And especially like it's quite, uh, you know, bad <laughs> because uh, obesity also increases the uh, duration that you can uh, carry the virus and uh, shed it for longer. So uh, it's um, especially especially negative in a society that tends to be uh, not in uh, good uh, metabolic health. Uh, one, one, one interesting thing that uh, we did discover during the writing of the book is that um, the, uh, one of the uh, molecules that gets activated during an infection is called uh, HMGB1, which, which stands for a high mobility protein box one and um, that gets activated during an infection and stress and it's it's one of these uh, key molecules 
that uh, kind of offsets the cytokine storm uh, by activating NFKB and NLRP3 inflammasome and eventually causing this uh, massive pro-inflammatory cytokine response. And the, the thing that we discovered was that uh, HMGB1 uh, uses different receptors to get into the cell, one of them being uh, toll-like receptors, but others is uh, the receptor for advanced glycation and products. So uh, what we, you know, theorized or, you know, based upon this research uh, would conclude is that, um, you know, hyperglycemia, insulin resistance, elevated blood sugar will uh, make it more likely that uh, HMGB1 is going to get into the cell and turn on NFKB and these other pro-inflammatory cytokines that will just um, eventually lead to the cytokine storm. Okay, good. Well, thank you for that segue and marvelous softball to go into a topic that I wanted to discuss, which is interestingly related to the book that Dr. James and I wrote together called Superfuel not too long ago. It was, no, I don't, it, no, my last book was on EMF. That was the one that just preceded EMF. So in that book, we went deep uh, on, on the topic of the different types of fats that should be used. And uh, I think the book is really state-of-the-art with respect to summarizing what the conventional wisdom is on this. But since we wrote that book, I became really deeply more appreciative of the, the damage that the omega-6 fats can. Now, and I'm not disputing in your book and in, in almost everyone else who's studying nutrition is recommending that we have to be careful of these vegetable oils. I don't think anyone's going to dispute that excessive vegetable oils, industrially processed vegetables are the, one of the worst foods you can possibly eat. In my view, it is the worst food. Uh, but what we didn't appreciate is there are some ostensibly healthy foods that will contribute to a specific type of omega-6, the most common one, which is linoleic acid, that if collectively you are exceeding probably 10 grams of this fat a day, maybe even five grams, you are going to radically decimate your metabolic health. And from a historical perspective, most people don't appreciate that a mere measly 150 years ago, 150 years, 1850, 1860, the average consumption of linoleic acid was two to three grams. Today, it's over 30 grams, 10 times as much. Now, why is this such a big issue? Because there's many foods in our supply, uh, in our diet now that we're taking extraordinarily larger amounts. Well, this is probably the most significant issue, in my view, far more important than our carbohydrate content, is because it is a walking potential disaster. It's one of the most perishable molecules and food that you're going to eat that's going to be susceptible to damage because of the double bonds in there that, that just get uh, activated and, and turns into uh, an oxidative metabolite. Uh, they're called oxalams, oxidative linoleic acid metabolites or oxylipids. And it's these oxylipids that circulate around and literally just activate all these pathways that destroy, essentially destroy your uh, immune response. So I, I really think this is when we wrote the book, James, I just mm -hmm. think that it's not something that I didn't appreciate. And I don't, I'm not sure that you do did either as do most other experts on this. They just don't appreciate that the, you've got, and it really is crucial to be super diligent about limiting that. And, and even practical, I mean, there's the, the common confusion on this is that olive oil has obtained the mystique of being this super beneficial Mediterranean diet, longevity producing food. 
when in fact, any, anything over a tablespoon a day is going to really increase your linoleic acid content. In fact, I'm so concerned about olive oil, I don't take it at all. So, uh, and then other foods like chicken, you know, if you're a carnivore diet, you're thinking, oh, it's, it's good, I'm gonna eat meat. Well, chicken is, and pork are loaded with linoleic acid. So, you know, it, it, when you do a, a detailed dietary analysis, if you can identify your total amount of linoleic acid, I think it could radically improve your health. So at least in my view, along with exercise and some of the other strategies you recommend seem like time-restricted eating and uh, sauna uh, and resistance exercise training. I think these are all powerful strategies. And in in my view, I think the linoleic acid restriction may be the single most important dietary intervention that we could have. That's a great point. And I think from a COVID-19 perspective, Right. The, the biggest thing that you're, you want to do is increase the resilience of your cells to oxidative stress. Yes. 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 Fortunately, if you're consuming a diet high in linoleic acid, if it doesn't get burned, the half-life of linoleic acid is 680 days. So yeah, it's two years, two years for very long. And it can start oxidizing the cellular membranes including on your immune cells as well. Every immune cell that has been tested, if you increase your omega-3 intake or increase your omega-6 intake, that affects the levels in your immune cells. And if you saturate your immune cells with this oxidized linoleic acid, you're probably at a much higher risk of secreting more pro-inflammatory cytokines and your own cells in your lungs, in your arteries are much more susceptible to damage from what occurs when we try and kill viruses. Hmm. Yeah, so I'm glad you're in agreement. Uh, you know, see, but this is the type of information that isn't in the book to put to put it in a perspective to to let people know that this is like one of the big points. You've got to do this, and and it's getting to you know devils in the details because either there's some places in the book where you, you I don't think the I, I have to pull up my notes and uh, on the but I'm pretty sure. Uh, Oh, you just talk about the, the omega-6 to 3 ratio. And this is another common confusion because you, you, you do an analysis and you see, I have this level of maybe 10, 15 grams of omega-6. So that means I got to go take a lot more omega-3s. Well, no, you, because that's another potentially oxal- oxidizable substrate. So it, which could cause damage and excess omega-3 is not good either. So you don't necessarily want to increase your omega-3. You want to decrease your omega-6, make sure you're getting adequate omega-3, the sufficient, because you can't make this stuff. Or that's what these, these are called essential fats. But the amount of, of omega-6 you need, it, it's almost impossible to eat food and not and become deficient in omega-6. It's just in almost every food, there's some omega-6. So it's not like you ever, ever need a supplement for this stuff. And it's, in fact, these, and they make them, they have omega-9, 6, and 3 supplements uh, that I think are one of the worst supplements on the market because it's given you excess omega-6. And that to me is one of the big, big components. I'm sure if we were to actually look at the blood levels of oxidized linoleic acid in these severe conditions, they would be sky high. And what people yeah. do- well, they, they do, they have them. You can measure them. There's the, 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 uh, the HNE uh, for hydroxynanonol is, is uh, one of the easier ones to measure, but there's others and they, they are through the roof. Uh, and you see that. And actually the, the, 
these leukocytes, they go in and they, they consume this and they, and they, I forget what they call it. It's a leukocyte activating factor or something that turns into it. But this, it goes through the roof because the white blood cells love this stuff. They absolutely love it. And it actually just disrupts the whole immune response in COVID-19. So it just makes everything worse. What most people too don't appreciate is, you know, we used to target and be really concerned with things called like eicosanoids, mm-hmm. right? Aspirin sort of kind of inhibits these inflammatory molecules, but oxalams, which you had mentioned, are oxidized linoleic acid metabolites, are orders of magnitude much higher than those, like a hundredfold. And, and in disease states, we see they're much even higher than that. So yeah, it's totally a, a huge driver of overall inflammation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So good. So you any what, comments on that scene? Yeah, like I, I want to mention that um, you know, yeah, these oxidized uh, omega six fats are really bad, but it's also like you alluded to that. Um, even like healthy omega-3s can become oxidized. So it's not necessarily the fat itself that is causing the damage. It's the oxidation of the fat and the oxidation of the lipids that is uh, going to cause this uh, inflammatory response and promote uh, DNA damage and other, other things. So yeah, like you have to also be careful with the omega-3s, uh, like, you know, salmon and this fish, if you overcook it, overfry it, or cook it in vegetable oil or something, then it's going to be harmful for you because it, the fats in them, the polyunsaturated fats in the fish are going to get oxidized. And uh, yeah, like most of the fish oil supplements in the market, they are probably oxidized because they're sitting on the shelf for too long underneath the heat and uh, light. So yeah, you, um, you, you want to consume fats that haven't been oxidized, uh, regardless of what the uh, source is coming from. Yeah, and getting back to metabolic health, uh, one of the primary drivers of metabolic disease is the fact that your mitochondria go into a, a dysfunctional state. And there is a really uh, interesting explanation on why excess linoleic acid would do that because there's this very special fat in the inner membrane of your mitochondria called cardiolipin. And it has, unlike a triglyceride, which has three fatty acids, this has four fatty acids, and most of them are linoleic acid. But if, you're, if you have a particularly high diet, and you're almost all going to be linoleic acid. Uh, and if you're eating other diet with other, other fats, you can substitute some of these things like, uh, like oleic acid and, and anything. So they'd be less susceptible to the damage. But when you have this massive amount of oxidative stress going on, those fatty acids in, in the cardiolipin becomes structurally damaged. As a result, the, the it's a this cardiolipin is such an incredible molecule. It, it is actually responsible for p- positionally putting the electron transport train into the proper position. It's it's a conformational shift. It, it, it there's little these little curves in the mitochondria and they're called cristae and the curve is where the cardiolipin is and it, and it literally squashes the electron transport chain together so that the, the electrons can transfer real smoothly through that and become efficient efficiently produce atp and if that if they, you lose that shape the whole system goes goes to pot and your ability to generate atp effortlessly is radically diminished. So that's another mechanism of how this excess linoleic acid can be such a devastating. uh, I would like to make one one point on omega-3s and cardiolipin. So it's actually the DHA in the cardiolipin that if a cell becomes damaged, that is the signal for apoptosis to essentially prevent it from turning into a cancerous cell. So if you don't have enough DHA in the cardiolipin, because not all oxidized omega-3s are, are bad, okay? We actually use oxidized omega-3s yeah. as signaling molecules to kill 
uh, damaged cells. So the, so the key, what I want to tell people is that you don't have enough DHA in your cardiolipin. That's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, that, that is, you have to have enough, but if you have too much, it can be problematic too. Right. Uh, it's like in anything that be, and, and, you know, uh, free radicals have gotten the bad rap for decades until we finally realized that, wow, these are really important biological signaling molecules. And if you indiscriminately suppress them with large amounts of antioxidants, that may not be a real good strategy because, you know, you're going to impair that biological signaling. So another point that you talk about, which is I'm really fond of, and I think we could jump into this now. Well, actually, before we do that, it's, well, you know, it was it, it's sort of the details of the linoleic acid, because one of your recommendations for getting magnesium from your food, which I think is a great strategy, uh, would be pumpkin seeds and sesame seeds and Brazil nuts. You know, those are all and almonds. These are foods that are super high in uh, linoleic acid, but also oxalates, too. So. You, you know, it, it, soup, they seem to be these nutrient dense foods, but they're potentially problematic. So I am really, really careful. And of, of all, but basically most all seeds now, I mean, in small amounts, I think they're, they're okay. But if you, if you start jump gobbling, these things sound like they're this incredible health food you can't overeat. That is the, the furthest thing from the truth, because think about it, it's that we're all, everyone, there's no, there's no controversy that, that seed oil or vegetable oils, which are they're called, which in reality are really seed oils, uh, are really one of the per most pernicious contributors for disease. So you've got to be careful with these foods like that, like, like the seeds that, so I would not eat them in high amounts. Well, I think, well, I think number one, taking a step back, there's yeah. two different types of oxalates. There are soluble, which are the actual harmful, right? Oxalates. Then there's insoluble, which you don't absorb and you just poop out. So that's number one. Number two, the amount of calcium is going to determine how much oxalate you absorbed. So if you have a food like spinach, that's really high in oxalates, but it's also extremely high in calcium, you don't absorb much of that oxalate. And I'll give you an example from a randomized- yeah, but that's, a, that's a separate argument. The primary concern is the linoleic acid. I think that's the more serious issue. And the oxalates, you know, and I could give counter arguments to that, but I don't want you guys just don't think it's, it's an important point. But the thing is, is they're high in linoleic acid. I think that is the, the most serious- pervasive metabolic poison that we're, we are over consuming is linoleic acid. Well, you don't, yeah. I mean, you don't need to consume a ton of, uh, and I don't really eat a ton of uh, seeds or, you know, I do eat some nuts, uh, particularly like uh, uh, pecans. I like pecans for the manganese. Um, right. But I, I mean, nature packages these foods and with antioxidants, right. And, and coatings on the linoleic acid. So I, I get it. If you're, you don't want to over consume these foods, Okay, to get a level of linoleic acid like 10 grams per day. But if you're only getting a couple grams of linoleic acid, it's probably not a huge deal. No, I just no, don't that's probably what you need. It's like two grams. But yeah. I, I would say it's the rare person, probably the rarity on the level of a human being, like, like how rare seam is with respect to his metabolic health. I mean, it's less than one in a thousand people who are having that level, probably less than one in 10,000 people. I do just want to say one too about the about the um the oxalates right and because i mean some people it this whole story of oxalates depends on a lot of things your b6 status right what type of microbiota you have what type of oxalate it is i mean there have been clinical studies that have given 20 times the normal oxalate intake and as long as the calcium intake is about 3,000 milligrams, there yeah, was you'll bind, you'll bind. Yeah, no increase in oxalates in the urine and no increase in oxalate stone formation. So it's a very nuanced topic. 
And I just don't want people to demonize plants simply because they contain oxalates. Yeah. That's just, that's my kind of little bit of a pushback. I know you had a really good dialogue with uh, Paul Saladino when you were on his podcast. So yeah, that was good. If you want more information and go into that, but uh, it's definitely controversial. This is science isn't settled at this point from, I think I agree. He's a serious student of this. So, uh, but I want to transition into the NAD, which is a molecule that I became passionate about and studied very deeply, read hundreds, if not thousands, well, hundreds of papers on this, you know, to understand the science of it, because I thought it was such an important molecule. So when you talk about that, uh, and you talk about some of the, the precursors that you can take, uh, like NMN, uh, uh, nicotinamide, monocyte, nucleotide, and NR, nicotinamide, riboside. Um, so, um, interestingly, you know, one of my heroes in this space and really the person who catalyzed my interest was David Sinclair. And I've had the opportunity to interview him on the podcast before. Uh, and he, I mean, he is like, he's probably one of the leading or top scientists in the world in this area. He's a researcher out at Harvard. And, um, you know, you'd correctly stated that there is not a lot of studies on NMN as opposed to NR. Uh, and that's true. But I, you know, if you look at the pathways, and I didn't get this until I really studied carefully, is that I think that NMN is probably superior to NR for, for a variety of reasons, because it really tends to go more into the, the, the salvage pathways. Uh, because you talk about using, you, like you can use tryptophan as a precursor. But that's such a small contribution. It's way less than 1% of the NAD is produced from tryptophan. tryptophan. Uh, where you, you, it's just activating this NAMPT, this recycle, the salvage pathway to increase your levels. I think it's going to be far more effective. And part of that salvage pathway is NMN. So the problem was that we didn't know that there was a receptor to get NMN inside the cell, but... Uh, within the last year or two, it's actually been identified. So, you, you know, that was my previous concern for it, but it doesn't seem to be an issue now because it, it, NMN seems to get into the cell. And if you can't get into the cell, it's not going to be useful. So how would you like yeah. to respond to that? Uh, Either I seen can, or... <laughs> I can yeah, talk about it. So like, uh, yeah, NAD is a very important uh, enzyme involved with like virtually all processes in the body, including immunity. So it can also just uh, regulates the immune cells and enhances the activity of interferons, which have like antiviral effects. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, a lot of the NAD that your body produces is being recycled uh, through the salvage pathway. And uh, a lot, very little of it is going to come uh, from uh, food, especially tryptophan or uh, niacin. Uh, yeah, it's, it's less than 1%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, you know, if you're, let's say, important one, you definitely want to make sure you're not niacin deficient, for sure. For sure. For or sure. tryptophan deficient. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like, yeah, you, the easiest way to prevent uh, losing your energy as you get older or as you get immunocompromised is to uh, promote the salvage pathway. And uh, one of the, uh, let's say, activators of this uh, NAMPT uh, enzyme that is, you know, governing the salvage pathway is AMPK, uh, which is uh, AMP activated protein kinase and AMPK gets primarily turned on by these catabolic stressors in the body, like exercise, uh, sauna, cold, uh, as well as fasting. So, uh, yeah, like uh, what I've kind of come to the conclusion is that uh, doing this regular intermittent fasting or time-free eating is a very efficient way of, uh, you know, keeping your energy levels high and uh, preventing the 
or lowering the other things that lower NAD, like inflammation and uh, oxidative stress. But uh, the problem is also that uh, NAMPT is uh, controlled by sirtuins and SIRT1 especially. So sirtuins are, you know, longevity genes mm -hmm. uh, that Sinclair researched, uh, but sirtuins also are uh, controlling the circadian rhythms. So what I think is that if you're, let's say, circadian rhythms are misaligned, you're uh, experiencing shift work or you're jet lagged or something, then uh, sirtuins are not going to be expressed. And uh, you will also then kind of inhibit uh, NAMPT, which will then shut down NAD resolvage. And that kind of maybe explain also why people who have circadian mismatches, you know, they experience these chronic diseases. Uh, especially so when like the sirtuins are suppressed from mismatch uh, circadian rhythms, uh, you're going to supp suppress NAMPT? Yeah, I think so, because uh, the uh, the NAMPT requires uh, sirtuins uh, to work. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. Actually, interesting, too. NAD is, a, a, or sirtuins consume NAD. So if you don't have enough NAD, then, the, then you're not going to get sirtuin benefits. So, but yeah, that, it's, what, it's, you, what you just mentioned is like, that to me is one of the another most powerful messages in the book. I mean, that is such a, an astute pearl to integrate into your normal lifestyle. You, you almost have to be reprehensibly negligent about your health not to do those, those things. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> the benefits are so extraordinary and it doesn't, you don't have to buy anything. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the key message, right? It's not like you, we're telling people to take NR, like that's necessary. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's on the margin, right? It's sort of yeah, like- Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's over and above. Right. Yeah. Right. I think I think like the supplemental NR and NMN are you know very useful if you're in a let's say NAD deficient state uh, because uh, the problem is that um, if you're already low in NAD then it's hard to raise that bar so to say because you're already so, so low and depleted uh, whereas if you're high NAD then you experience the less negative side effects from inflammation, oxidative stress, because your body can, you know, repair and deal with it. Whereas if you're immunocompromised, you're um, very old, uh, or you are just nutrient deficient and you have low NAD, then uh, it's a vicious feedback loop that uh, you're going to be going uh, down in a downward spiral. So using something like an NAD uh, precursor or booster can be just a way of, uh, let's say, getting a quick fix and uh, maybe getting yourself back on the uh, right track. Yeah, and if either if you use either one of those, uh, and you take it orally, like almost everyone would do, who's, who's doing NAD supplementation, uh, you're going to methylate that, and you're going to excrete it through the urine, or you're going to get high levels in your liver, but you're not, that's not really going to the rest of your body. So I, if I, I do use uh, uh, NMN, but I use it in a suppository. I make my own suppository because, as far as I know, they're, they're not made. You could. I mean, there, you could take NAD the same way, or it, it is possible to get it as a prescription to use it perennially or subcutaneously or intranasally so that it bypasses that metabolism and methylation in the liver. But that's a big issue if you're going to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, like if you're, if you're taking NMN or NR by itself alone, then yeah, you could, you could probably combine it with uh, some methyl donors like uh, trimethylglycine. Uh, glycine B12, uh, uh, creatine itself or something uh, to yeah prevent that uh, loss of uh, methyl donors. Okay. So any other comments, uh, James? 
Yeah, I would, I would just say key message should be figure out what is causing your NAD depletion rather than just trying to supplement. Uh, well, how do you how do you do that? Well, ultimately, <laughs> it's going to be an underlying root cause of any type of oxidative stress is going to you know deplete NAD. So fix your metabolic um, dysfunction, improve your nutrient deficiencies first, and ultimately your NAD uh, need is going to go down. Fix the things that are causing you to burn through your NAD. I agree. And the most common one, the one I actually wrote uh, my last book on was EMF exposure, because there's a, a one. There's two primary enzymes that consume it. One is PARP, poly-ADP ribose polymerase, more recently transformed their name to ART, adenosine ribosyl transferase. Uh, but that is the one that gets, that is uh, used to repair DNA damage. And and for every time PARP is activated, you're using 150 molecules of NAD. So that's a big one. And CD38 is another one that's in the immune response. So if you have all these immune exposures as a result of being metabolically unhealthy, you're going to consume it. So th- I think you're right. Those are the two th- things. And, and uh, seem if you, those, those recommendations on optimizing your metabolic health with the sauna and the exercise and the, the fasting, I mean, those are the, those are the things that's going to radically improve not only the production of NAD, but their consumption. Yeah. And they're going to also lower inflammation, which will mm-hmm. yeah, preserve more of the NAD. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, uh, James, what would you say would be one or two other key messages that if you, I mean, you went over the nutritional ones, the top highlights, and that was a really great review. We've discussed some of the, me- the metabolic things and the, the fatty acid composition of your diet. What, what would you say is another, another few good pearls that you could uh, summarize from the book? One would be to fix hyperinsulinemia, which affects 75% of U.S. adults, essentially cutting out, you know, refined carbs, sugars, and seed oils, because again, it's, it's about demand uh, when it comes to nutrient status. So when you have high levels of insulin, you're kicking out more magnesium and calcium. And when you are uh, set, when your cells are insulin resistant, they don't utilize the nutrients as well, because in order to get magnesium or potassium into the cell, uh, the cell utilizes insulin signaling. So if you, if your cells are resistant to insulin, again, that's increasing your need for nutrients. So fixing hyperinsulinemia, which is completely underdiagnosed, and no, no one does a craft insulin assay, but when you do that, about 75% of U.S. adults have hyperinsulinemia. Would you say craft? A craft, yeah, craft insulin. I I would say not. Nolan doesn't doesn't even do it. I would say ninety nine point nine percent of clinicians aren't even aware of what that assay is. So why don't you help those who haven't or have been heard of that before? What that is, okay? Most clinicians do know what an oral glucose tolerance test is. You simply just add an insulin assay to that same test. It's very simple to do, and uh, we know that. 50 to 75% of people with a normal oral glucose tolerance test will actually have an abnormal uh, insulin assay. And so essentially you have so many people with undiagnosed diabetes in the, in the uh, common general population. The other thing that you had touched on is- Let me just finish on that too, because Kraft was a pathologist who, who died not too long ago. He lived in his nineties, but he wrote a whole book on this. And the, the way that the insulin responds is, is not obvious. And it, it, you know, his book's pretty, it's a, for written for lay people, but you could do the test yourself. Either your doctor doesn't have to do it. Other, he has to order it for you, but you can get, you know, graph out the results and figure out if in fact you're hyperinsulinemic and 90% of people are. And thank you for mentioning, because almost all 
people, when they talk about hyperinsulinemia, only talk about the carbs, but you correctly mentioned is the seed oils. The linoleic acid excess contributes to add to hyperinsulinemia. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that, um, that definitely, that message needs to get out there more for sure. Two other key factors would be things that disrupt your melatonin production throughout the day, right? Not getting adequate sunlight in the morning throughout the day, um, in the evening, because you need that. We used to, we evolved with very bright days and very dark nights. And now we're living in a society of dim days, dim lights, and, you know, try to turn off your lights at night, or if you need to use blue blockers, fine. Um, because that will, those things help you to inhibit the melatonin suppressors throughout the day. And then sauna, I have an infrared clear light sauna and I use it about five times a week. And what's interesting is um, we, we, first of all, mammals uh, for the past hundreds of millions of years have utilized fever as a first line of defense against infections and a, and a sauna can mimic that. And so what was interesting when they were first researching this, they took cold blooded animals and they put them in a, essentially a sauna, raised their temperature, heat shocked them, and then gave them lethal viruses and their mortality was significantly reduced. Um, so they were trying to, you know, you know, we, we can increase uh, our own response, our own internal temperature when we have an infection, but cold-blooded animals, right? It's determined on exogenous. So they wanted to just strictly test if literally heating them from the outside could, could have this type of effect. And it was shown to do it not only obviously in mammals, but also cold-blooded animals, which is really interesting. And then the real magic happened when they started heat shocking mice giving them lethal avian or bird flu, which is what caused the 1918 Spanish flu. And when they heat shock these mice, essentially, you know, throwing them in saunas prior to infecting them with lethal bird flu, the lung pathology mortality and viral replication was significantly lower if they got heat shocked first. And so, and, and then the real great mechanistic studies that determined how this all works started coming out. And essentially what happens is, is the reason why we induce a fever to fight an infection is because that allows our cells to secrete heat shock proteins. And in order for a virus to replicate, it has to infect your cell, hijack your machinery, and it has to export its ribonucleoprotein complex out of the cell. In order for that complex to get exported out, the M1 protein has to dock onto it. Heat shock protein 70 can bind to the complex prevent M1 protein from docking and essentially inhibit the export of that viral ribonucleoprotein complex, essentially inhibiting viral replication. And we've seen through numerous prospective studies that people who go into the sauna four to five times a week at about 20 to 25 minutes a session are at a much significantly lower risk of the common cold, influenza, pneumonia. And there's even a clinical study in people um, where they divided, one group got sauna sessions, the other didn't, and there was a 50% reduction in the common cold. So even human studies have sort of tested this theory out. People will ask me, well, can I just jump in a hot tub? But you need to activate heat shock proteins in the sinuses, the nasal passages in the throat, because that's where viruses like to initially infect and propagate is in cooler areas. You, you don't get that benefit in a hot that, tub. That, that, is a, that is a good point if you're seeking to treat infections. But if you're just seeking to in, in receive the benefits of refolding your misfolded proteins, then mm. you're in a bath. Because there's so many people who don't simply have access to a sauna. 
And I, I agree, it's far superior to a hot bathtub, but that's the only thing you have. It's something's better than nothing. And even though it may not you give you benefit. You don't need a sauna. You can exercise in the heat or you can put on multiple layers of clothes and exercise to boost your whole core body temperature. The key is to activate heat shock proteins throughout the entire body. And you can even go and sit in your car on a hot summer day if you don't have a sauna. Oh, that is a sauna. <laughs> so, but I mean, honestly, just unless you, unless you live in Estonia or like Seam does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then Seam's going to have to run about three miles really fast in about 12 layers of clothes. Yeah. 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 A few burpees is going to do the trick. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it must be pretty cold out there now as we're approaching Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think Thanksgiving isn't a holiday in Estonia, I'm sure, right? No, 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 it's not. Yeah, yeah. So, but at this time of year, is it getting down to, uh, let's keep it to Fahrenheit. Is it below zero, below freezing there? It's below zero? Uh, not yet, but it's uh, getting slightly chilly. Um, so I think maybe, uh, maybe like uh, 19 or no, no, like nine degrees Fahrenheit, something, something like that. Okay. So it's definitely cold, much colder than where I'm at. So, uh, so do you have any, uh, highlights that you like to emphasize before we sign off uh well yeah like maybe i'll also add yeah like the sauna doing regular sauna and exercise one of the best things uh, for just uh, strengthening your immune system and uh, increasing your uh, resilience and maybe like uh one thing that we also discovered from the book writing the book is that uh, uh the the actually like the exercise itself also causes you know this uh, hormetic effect and uh the this, it's called preconditioning hormesis, so that if you are ex exercising beforehand or uh, getting heat shocked uh, before experiencing some um, infection or uh, stress, then you do definitely uh, bolster yourself against that, and the studies uh, show that. So you shouldn't be afraid of like these uh, small amounts of, uh, let's say, oxidative stress that's coming from the beneficial sources, uh, like exercise uh, or the heat, uh, because you know it's. So you're right. So you're finding be additional synergistic benefits when you integrate exercise immediately prior to the sauna no i mean i mean both both of them are going to be uh beneficial for bolstering yourself against the um the infections that you may come across or uh, you know other other viruses but, but would you think because that would, would it make more sense to do the exercise before so you you know you've, you've already heated your body up metabolically yeah, I, internally yeah that's 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 how i do because uh you know um you know, the uh, heat is going to also promote recovery from the exercise, like boosting growth hormone, uh, repairing the uh, damaged proteins, and uh, yeah, just uh, you know, getting a reduction in uh, the inflammation as well. So yeah, I, I personally do the sauna after exercise, especially if it's like resistance well, exercise. Let's because... continue that dialogue because I think I think it was in this book or certainly another uh, information you've shared previously. Uh, do you think, I, I think your personal strategy is not to go, even though it's common in your area of the world for people to do the sauna and then jump into the cold, cold plunge or in the icy river or the lake or whatever. Um, do you not recommend that now because you think it's going to uh, lessen some of the benefits from the sauna and, and, and do it at a different time of the day? Joe, I introduced that into the book. Oh, you introduced, okay, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, sorry. I yeah, so, but I, 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 pers I, I personally still do the cold uh, after the sauna sometimes, uh, but I don't do it all the time. Uh, but uh, well, I, I personally, I just um, enjoy it and uh, get like, I, I do believe like maybe getting like this uh, alternative effects, you, you kind of condition your body to kind of swap back and forth uh, between uh, these uh, two uh, extremes. 
But uh, if you don't have access to the colds or something, then the regular sauna is also definitely uh, very beneficial. Okay, so James, go ahead. Yeah, so Seam and I disagreed a little bit on this. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, so essentially what the studies show, if you, if you exercise and then you, you do cold therapy that can prevent and blunt the benefits of exercise, whereas, whereas sauna seems to have the opposite effect, but in the same token, you don't want to do sauna. That's, that's different. I agree. There's no controversy about that. You don't want to exercise and go into the cold. Plunge. Yeah. But, let me finish. Okay. Yep. I'll get to it. I'll get to the point here. Um, so I kind of lost my train of thought. That's Sorry. Okay. Uh, so essentially, um, right. So the, so the studies show, right. But, but the, the same flip side, if you go into the sauna, uh, that's the worst thing to do the day before an event. Okay. You never want to do sauna the day before like a triathlon, because it, it it's, uh, it takes, it takes more to recover from that event. Uh, you, so numerous studies have shown if you sauna the day prior to an event, you, it's, it, definitely worsens your competition and, and how well you do in any type of performance. It's good to do it after the event um, because it's enhancing the benefits of exercise. Now, cold, the reason why I don't think you want to um, uh, do cold therapy after sauna is because the heat shock proteins are elevated for a long time. Not They don't just instantly fall down. And you are going, instead of allowing your body to right, deal with that high heat, you're instantly giving it a, 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 an easy way out right? You're, you're automatically now going into the cold and not fully, in my opinion, getting the full benefits of the sauna. So, so I don't like to alternate because I don't want to make it easy on my body after I've gone into the sauna. So I guess that one of the concerns for that would be though, uh, in the sauna, one of the other benefits we didn't talk about would be, uh, elimination of toxins in your sweat. So, to remove those toxins, would you just say to dry towel off or just do go into a hot shower so that you don't lower your core body temperature? Yeah, that's a great point to keep the pores open, essentially uh, what you're saying. Yeah, but well, and remove those toxins because if you know, you're excreting them, the last thing you want to do is reabsorb them when the sweat dries. Right. So if so, people who don't know, there's been uh, several good studies, uh, particularly on infrared sauna, that you do eliminate um, phthalates, which are these flame retardants? Uh, well, flame retardants too, but but phthalates, uh, which are lining, right? Plastic linings and in, in cups and stuff, and uh, like in coffee cups, and you eliminate heavy metals through sweating and and a bunch of other. Or yeah, I think the flame retardants are BBDs, PBDs. Yeah. yeah, and BPA you can even eliminate too through sweating through sauna. Uh, and, and so that's a good point as well that that we are living in this uh, environment where we accumulate heavy metals cadmium, um, and on all these other types of persistent organic pollutants. And we store them in our fat as well. And, um, which can be released, uh, through fasting. So, so binding those, uh, seem to be important and, and essentially it, fasting can have a downside. If you, uh, if you have stored a ton of these persistent organic pollutants, and then you just fast, you get a tremendous release. And some of these are neurotoxic and, uh, so there are strategies, potential binding strategies. Yeah, that's a tangent though. But you just think, I mean, from your perspective, and I think it could be a valid one where you're lessening the benefits of the heat shock proteins. Yes. yes. What, do you, what do you think the exposure to the cold stress? I mean, if you just like showered for like 10 seconds just to remove the toxins, would that be that's enough not. of a stimulus to, to no. significantly lower the heat shock proteins? 
No, I don't think so. I think though, if you're jumping in like an ice bath for a couple of minutes, I think that will inhibit. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good point. And and uh, maybe like if you want to optimally, you know, maximize the benefits from the heat shock proteins, then uh, do that. Do the cold bath maybe like an hour or two later, where your body has already kind of processed the heat shock proteins, and uh, then you can you know, maybe cool down because you know you don't want to be uh, constantly activating this uh, stress response as well because the heat shock stress uh, is a uh, you know, stress response and uh, let's say if you if you're not cooling down afterwards then that can also be problematic if it's chronically elevated okay well great book guys uh really is immunity fix and if you enjoyed what you listened here today i can assure you with the highest degree of confidence that less than we covered less than two percent of what's in this book less than two percent I mean, we just taught, touched on just a very few topics. We went deep because I thought it was important and especially put them in, in a perspective. But this is, book is loaded. It's like an encyclopedia, really. I mean, stuff that you would never think of is in here and it can give you good ideas and that you could research your, yourself even more. But there's some really solid information here. So great book, The Immunity Fix. It is available pretty much everywhere online. And... Uh, it has been a delight connecting with you two guys. You too. Good seeing you, Joe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, is, and I, I would be negligent. I mean, James, you, I don't think you have a, do you have a website where people go and follow or Twitter account? Yeah, uh, drjamesdenick.com and Twitter and Instagram is at drjamesdenick, D-I-N-I-C. Okay, good. And, and Seam, you've got, I, I, you, my favorite way to consume your content is through a YouTube channel. You put in some really good ones. I mean, you, you're interviewing people like I do, but you also have these well, very well produced, you know, smaller segments, like five to 10 minutes of really important metabolic pearls that people can integrate into their lifestyle. So how do people find that? Yeah, my uh, YouTube and uh, social media channels are all Seamland and my website is also seamland.com. Okay, yeah, it's good work. So you guys, you guys knocked it out of the park. So congratulations. And uh, you know, hopefully people will consider getting your book to learn more about this work. Thanks, Joe. Thanks.